26, 14 through 29, the word of God speaks to us like this. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of God to us. Good morning, guys. How are you? Good. It's, uh, it's really good to be with you guys today. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Josh Cray. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I've got two things that are really important today, two bits of family business. The first thing is I just want to acknowledge that one of the things that we're fighting for as a church is to cut against the grain of the isolation of the West. Like, it's never been more true of our culture that most men live lives of quiet desperation. And that's not... That is not in step with what Jesus has accomplished to make us brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the greatest gifts in my life over the last seven years, eight years, has been the deepening of friendships, not only with brothers and sisters in this church, but men that I love that have become my best friends that are pastoring other churches. And today, one of my best friends on planet Earth is here, my friend Kevin Colley that planted Redeemer Church in Kansas City. And uh, I can't express to you guys just how much I love this guy. Uh, what I've learned from him, the way that I love Jesus more because I know him, the way that I've been encouraged to not quit so many times in ministry through him. Like, he's a gift to me and he's a gift to our church. And I'm just really glad you're here. So thanks for driving down. And then we get to celebrate something that's really good news. Answers to prayer are worth stopping and naming and celebrating. And uh, when God gave us this building that we never thought we'd be able to have, because when we planted Frontline Church, uh, there was only one person with a real job among our core group. And we were pathetically broke. And uh, every week when people would give their offerings, the dollar bills would smell like beer. 
And it was just a really, it was a really beautiful move of God, but it was really hard to see what the future of this church would be. And the fact that God provided this building in the heart of the city as a tool to love OKC was just a monumental gift of grace that we didn't deserve and we didn't expect. And when we moved into this building, one of the things that was a bit overwhelming was that right over here, there's an east wing that has over 12,000 square feet that hadn't been used to advance the gospel of Jesus in over 60 years. And in 2018, we, we felt like it was time um, to do the work, to call one another to generosity, to renovate that building, to use it as a tool to bless kids and families in OKC. And so since 2018, you guys have been giving and we've been working and the process has been so slow and difficult, but guess what? We got our occupancy in the last week. We got our occupancy and uh, what that means, this is so crazy, what that means is that September 5th, in just a few weeks, our nursery is gonna be moving into that amazing building. Our kids, our elementary kids, have a brand new space downstairs, and that's gonna be an awesome tool to come alongside moms and dads and help you do the work of discipling your kids on Sundays, but it's not just about Sundays. We wanna use those buildings between Sundays to bless and serve OKC. And we're praying, we're dreaming about how to love our schools, how to love single moms in our city, and how to see that building full of life. So on September 5th, we'll have a new family entrance. If you're bringing your kids into kids' church or nursery, you'll be entering in off of 10th Street. And here's the thing that's also epic. We get to say goodbye to the terrible, horrific chairlift and hello to an actual elevator in our building. So that is a huge deal for our church. Thank you, Jesus, for providing that for us. And then... Um, September 16th is an evening, and we're going to have an open house. And we invite all of you guys to come and tour the building. Um, those of you guys that gave so generously, we want you to see what God did through that and get to walk through that building. We're going to pray over it. We're going to ask Jesus to make it really fruitful to advance his gospel and to love and serve our city. And then September 19th, we're going to host a Sunday morning huge event for our kids to get to invite their friends and family members that don't know Jesus to come and be with us on a Sunday morning. So... Praise be to God for that. That's a really big deal. And thank you guys for your participation and your patience and your faithfulness as this has been a really long project. Amen? Amen. Okay. Hey, uh, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to ask you to pray for me because I really need it with this text today. Father, I think the thing that I want so badly today and the thing that feels really clear is I want you and we need you to fill these gaps in our lives. Um, there's a really big gap for a lot of us between what we believe and the affections of our heart. There's a really big gap between doubt and faith. There's a really big gap between what we read about in Scripture with your power and your presence and devotion to you and the way that every one of us in this room feel pulled into lives that aren't in step with the resurrection of Jesus. I pray today that you would meet us and that you would fill the gaps and that you would form us and shape us. And I'm so thankful for my friends in here that are not Christians. I'm so thankful that they're here, that they're actually showing us an act of hospitality and grace as they've gathered. And I pray that today they would see Jesus. And I pray that you would meet us in all the weird, diverse ways that we don't even know how to name. Would you come and form us and shape us and get us to the great day in faith? We thank you, we love you, we trust you. Let this word come alive in our souls, we pray, in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, 
Amen. Hey, so if you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 14 through 29. We're walking through the gospel of Mark. And, like, there's no such thing as hazard pay for preachers. But if that was a thing, I should probably get that today for this text. This is an unbelievably tricky text and a confusing text. And my go-to guys in church history, like the guys I like to turn to if I don't know what a text is about or why it's in scripture, guys like St. Augustine and Luther, those guys are crickets on this text. They did not help me at all this week. And modern commentaries on this text are of no use because what they tend to do is they just pick a couple of things and they make the whole text about, hey, don't take a rash oath. And that's good advice and that's true and that's in the text. Or lust is going to snare you and it's really destructive. And that's also true. And we're going to talk about that. And that's in the text. But this text is weird. This text is like Mark throwing the e-break in the entire narrative of the gospel of Mark. I remember when I was in high school, I had this really bad habit that would get me in trouble with my friends of reaching over on city streets and just pulling their emergency brake. And, and I would call it a BRT, a breaking readiness test. And this passage today feels like that's what Mark is doing in the narrative. Like Mark is so clear and he's so focused on the details of Jesus' life and ministry that he puts in his gospel. And last week we got to celebrate the beauty of the apostles being sent out and people being healed and coming to faith in Jesus and demons being cast out. And next week we get to see Jesus do another miracle of feeding the multitude. And between those things, we get pulled out of the narrative of Jesus' life and we get introduced to this tragic, really profoundly dark moment where a narcissistic, pleasure-hungry king murders a prophet of God. And what's crazy about this text, what's weird about it to me, is that this break in the narrative is jolting and it's shocking, and I think it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to get our attention. It's supposed to wake us up. And the way in which Mark asks us to pull back from the narrative about Jesus and to look at this really dark and tragic moment actually leads us to this place where we get to explore the contrast between these two people. And I don't think that anybody in the room would read the story of Herod and say, I want to be like that guy. Like, we wouldn't admit that. Herod is addicted to pleasure. He's violent. He's lustful. He's a buffoon as a leader. Nobody in the room looks at Herod and says, hey, I really want his life. But here's the thing I also think we have to admit, and I'm included, I don't think that we find John's life particularly compelling either. Here's this guy that's a prophet that lives in the wilderness. Here's this guy that has this simple diet. Here's this guy that lives a lifestyle that's ascetic. He fasts and he prays and he wears camel hair garments and he eats a simple diet of locust and honey. And here's a guy who gets arrested and thrown in jail and he's murdered in his early 30s as a guy who's poor, who's never been married, who doesn't have kids, who didn't experience the things in life that we think you have to have to be happy. So we look at Herod and we look at John and they're so different. And in the contrast, we're kind of left wondering, like, what does this story have to do with me? You have Herod, who's a man of the palace. Like, I actually think that uh, Jesus Christ superstar from the 1970s kind of nails Herod. He's this guy that just wants to wear fancy clothes and live in a comfortable place. 
And there's John who lives in the wilderness and he wears rough and scratchy clothes and he's probably skinny and he's sunburned. You have Herod, who's a man of pleasure. He's a man that eats too much and drinks too much. He's a man of lust. He's a man that's taken his brother's wife and he's a man that's so addicted to lust that he's even compelled by the dancing of his stepdaughter. And then you have John, who's a man of self-denial. He's a man that's constantly turning away from the things of this world as his ultimate answer and setting his face like flint to look at Jesus in the kingdom of God. You have Herod, who's a prototypical example of a man that's obsessed with power and politics. His life revolves around manipulation. His life is about platform. His life is about holding all that he has and getting more and acquiring. His life is about wealth and comfort. And then you have John, who is all about prophetic subversion. Like John's really powerful, but the power of John doesn't come from his position or from his money or from the way in which he uses relationships to manipulate people. The power of John is rooted in the fact that he has no power except for the word of God. And then you have Herod, who's a man, maybe most of all, that seeks autonomy. He has to submit to Rome, but in the midst of submitting to Rome, he pretty much can do whatever he wants in his little kingdom. He's a man that accepts no external authority. He doesn't listen to the authority of God's word or God's prophet. And then you have John, and maybe the greatest thing about John's life that we have to see is that he's a man that first and foremost is completely surrendered to the word of God, and in particular, the word of God incarnate, his cousin Jesus. And in the contrast of these two people, the point isn't that we need to find a middle road between the two where we take some of Herod's vices and some of John's virtues and we just try to find the middle road of being moderate as followers of Jesus. The contrast of these two men says something really profound about what we think is a tragedy for our life and what we think a beautiful life would be. The contrast of these two people is that we're asked by the scriptures to wrestle with what is the good life. What is it that makes a life worth living? What is it that makes a life a tragedy? And in these two people, we're invited to actually ask that deep question, what do I think life is for? And what do I think would make life worth living? And it's a question we don't often ask because in our particular cultural moment, we have a thousand different messages and a thousand different stories that are all competing to give us the version of the good life. And let's be honest, for most of us, we're kind of like sheep that are led by our wallets and our appetites and the desire for the next experience. And so this text really serves us well because listen, John's life is only an example of the good life that the resurrection of Jesus happened. John's life only makes sense if Jesus is who he claimed he is and if the tomb is not the end. And Herod's life only makes sense. It only makes sense if this life is the end. And make no mistake, like Herod's life actually does make sense if this life is the end. And in the midst of that contrast, we're invited in to wrestle with what it means to be a follower of Jesus in 2021 and to admit the fact that 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19 doesn't make a lot of sense to any of us. 
Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I don't know that that's true of my life right now. I want it to be true. Like, I want to follow Jesus in such a way that people would look at me and say, if the resurrection of Jesus isn't true, if it's not true that both the just and the unjust are going to be bodily raised on the great day to stand before Jesus, if that's not true, we're of all people most to be pitied. But I think there's a gap between the way that most of us live and that reality. And these two people invite us into that gap to wrestle with it, to ask questions about beauty versus tragedy, about the meaning of our lives, about the end of our lives, about the weight of the resurrection, about what we think we need to be fulfilled. And so what I want to do today is just walk you through these two men. I want to walk you through three things about Herod and three things about John that are profoundly different. Take your Bibles, go with me. Number one, I want you to see that Herod is open to the supernatural slash spiritual, but he's never changed. He's open to superstition, and he lives in a moment where he sort of is a modern example of designer spirituality, where he's exposed to Jewish teachings and belief and the prophetic ministry of John and even the miracles of Jesus, but he also is thrown in pinches of paganism from Rome and from Greece. Look what happens in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, who I beheaded, has been raised. Here's what's crazy. Like, this guy Herod is open to the supernatural. He's open to the spiritual. He's not a skeptic. He's a guy that believes that strange things can happen, that the natural world is not the end. And he's even curious about John and Jesus. Look at verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing, listen to these words, knowing that John was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Okay, this is a stark warning. Here's what we see in the life of Herod. He's a guy that's actually curious about these things that are happening in the first century with John and with Jesus. He's a guy that recognizes and admits that John's life is marked with the power of God and the righteousness of God. And he's even a guy that's set with John to ask him questions and to hear from him. But here's the tragedy. He never repents. He never believes. He never surrenders to Jesus. I think maybe just maybe this is the world in which you and me are living as well. I think it's possible to be raised in this part of the world, to go to church, to be exposed to churches, to hear all of these different messages and to sort of acquire the things we think are helpful from the Christian faith, things that we think might benefit our life, while at the same time absorbing and consuming different spiritualities and different ideas and different philosophies of life and to create this designer stew of spirituality my way that actually denies the power of God and doesn't lead to any life transformation. And I'm actually afraid of that for us. I'm afraid of that. Because what we know from history is that if Herod could be in the presence of John, and what we're going to see at the end of Herod's story, if Herod could even question Jesus, 
and be open to the supernatural, but never surrender and never repent, then it's really possible for you and me to make this a silly religious exercise that we participate in week after week after week as a prelude to brunch without actually having our hearts changed. to the power of God and the presence of God, and he's so far away. This leads to the second thing. I want you to see that Herod loves his freedom, but he's really in bondage. The irony of Herod's life is that he has all kinds of authority and autonomy, but he doesn't actually have freedom. Look at verse 21. When an opportunity came, when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison, and he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to his mother. Here's what's wild. This guy seems to have all the freedom in the world, next to competition with Pilate and the authority of Caesar. He can do almost whatever he wants. He has impunity, but here's what we see between the lines. Under the surface, though he was free to take his brother's wife, he's bound by the ugly consequences. And though he's free to make an oath, he's bound by the foolishness of the vow. And in the midst of all of his power and all of his posturing, all of his chest puffing and braggadocious oath-making, what we see is that he's a lot like a lot of us in this room. He's just a guy that's trying to curate his image of freedom and authority and autonomy while at the same time being blind and bound. He cares so much about what these guests think of him that he's willing to do something he knows is wrong and that might just lead him to a confrontation with the living God, but in his quest for freedom and approval, he steps towards that tragedy, and what we see in this guy is like, he thinks he's super free, but he is so tied up. He's tied up with lust. He's tied up with greed. He's tied up with people pleasing. He is bound. This is a guy that's in shackles, even though he lives in a palace. Jonathan Franzen's novel, Freedom, um, if it was a movie, it would definitely have some fast forward moments, so don't read it and send me emails. Um, but it's also a really powerful book because in that book, Franzen is exploring all the ways in which you and me are in this moment where we have more options than we've ever had in the history of the world. And we're obsessed with autonomy. We're obsessed with freedom. We're trying to break all the boundaries. Anything that could restrict us or tell us no, we see as an obstacle to our happiness. But throughout the course of the book, here's what happens. The more the characters in the story pursue freedom on their own terms, the more they jettison their responsibilities and their commitments and any structure that could tell them no, the more tied up they become 
And the redemptive end of the book is that the characters actually start to find a measure of freedom when they start to find limitation and restriction and boundary. One of the characters in this story says this, you may be poor, but the one thing nobody can take away from you is the freedom to blank up your life whatever way you want to. And I think Herod, though he's an ancient person from 2,000 years ago, is actually a really modern example of just how our obsession with freedom on our own terms is not leading to more freedom. We're more depressed, we're more anxious, we're more tied up, we're more afraid of what people think, we're more addicted. He's not free. (laughs) But he would probably tell you that the most important thing in his life is that he gets to do things on his own terms. And this leads to the last thing. I mentioned it, but I want you to see it explicitly. The tragedy of Herod is that he's so close to redemption, but he's so far away. In verse 20, it says that he heard John and was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. That's bad enough. He's hearing this prophet who Jesus said is probably the greatest of the Old Testament tradition of prophets, this guy that's the forerunner of Jesus. He's hearing him. And he knows he's holy and he's perplexed and he hears him gladly, but he never surrenders. And it gets more tragic in Luke 23. I want you to see these words, starting in verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length, but he made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And look at verse 12. I think this might be in the running for the saddest verse in the entire Bible. Verse 12. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. (laughs) Here's the tragedy. He's in the presence of Jesus. He's with the Son of God, the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And instead of becoming friends with Jesus, he mocks Jesus and becomes friends with Pilate, who seals the execution of Jesus. Like, I don't know how you can get closer to the things of God and the goodness of the gospel and the hope of salvation and a life of meaning and the forgiveness of sins and a new identity and freedom and joy and beauty and eternity and still be blind and dead and miss it. And I think the thing about Herod is that the message of John and the message of Jesus is an existential threat to everything that he thinks matters in life. It's a roadblock to his freedom, it's a roadblock to his comfort, it's a roadblock to the pursuit of money as the end, it's a roadblock to him being on the throne in his life. Because the very message of Jesus is that Jesus is king and we are not. That's the life of Herod. Now, I want you to look at John, and I want you to see the contrast, and I want you to ask honestly which life is a tragedy. I want to show you three things about the life of John, and the first one's going to be really unpopular, but I want to be faithful to show you what the text says. Number one, I want you to see that John speaks God's word about sexual sin, even though it cost him his life. I want you to see the thing that leads to John's beheading 
in verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod was living in unrepentant sin that violated the commands of God. He was sleeping with his brother's wife. He was living, though in a state of marriage, in unrepentant adultery. And John, this prophetic guy, takes that so deadly seriously that he's willing to risk his life with one of the most powerful people in the entire land in hopes that that guy might just might repent and be forgiven and be cleansed. And what I want you to see is that to John, to John and to all of scriptures, biblical teachings about sexuality, about obeying Jesus with our bodies, it's not just about expressing ourselves sexually. Scriptural teaching on following Jesus in celibacy in our singleness and in fidelity in our marriages, following Jesus and his teachings on sexuality is about authority. It's about authority. For John and for Jesus to disobey the teachings of scripture around sexuality is to deny God as creator and God as redeemer. Because as creator, as creator, God has the authority to say these are the boundaries for which I've created you to live in for your flourishing and for your good. These are things that are not going to help you. These are things that are going to be destructive for you and for others. And as creator, the one that made us, God has the authority to say, here are good boundaries for your joy and for human flourishing. And to disobey God's teachings around sexuality is to say, listen, I don't care about the boundaries you've created. I'm going to be my own authority. And for John and for the New Testament church, to disobey the teachings of Scripture around Christian sexual ethics is to also disobey Jesus as Redeemer. That God is our creator, but if you've trusted in Jesus, he's also your redeemer. And the scripture says that you've been bought with a price, you're not your own. So unrepentant sexual sin, I need you to get this, is not because the Bible thinks that sex is bad or dirty or gross. The Bible is very pro-sex. Sex is a good gift from God, but when it's used on our own terms, in our own ways, apart from God as creator and apart from God as redeemer, it actually gets to the heart of all sin. St. Augustine nailed it when he said, the mother of all sin is pride. And he's not just saying just sort of the vice of thinking we're a little bit better than what we are. When he says that the mother of all sin is pride, he's reminding us that sin was born in the heart of Lucifer when he wanted to elevate his throne and his authority to the place of God. And that this world broke, that creation fell, that literally, track with me on this, everything that's decaying and corrupt and terrible in this world, genocide and sex trafficking, and parents burying babies, that the thorns and thistles of this world, all of that stuff had its genesis in a moment where our first parents decided that they would be like God in ways that they were never designed to be like God. And I 
think that this is really important for us to sit here for just a second because we live in a really dangerous moment where our culture is telling us simultaneously sex is nothing and sex is everything. <laughs> I don't remember who wrote that, but it hit me really hard. In our culture, sex is nothing. It's just a recreational act, and it has no substance, and it's not spiritual, and it doesn't affect you, so just let it be recreation. And at the very same time, our culture teaches that sex is also the primary way that we express our identity, that we self-actualize, and that we live a life that matters. And I think one of the greatest threats to many of us in this room in finishing the race and following Jesus and getting to the end is that to depart, listen to me, to depart from the Bible's clear teachings about sex and sexuality is to deny the authority claims of Scripture and the authority claims of God. And it's been really sad this year to see people that a year ago were following Jesus and submitting to his word that have walked away from Jesus and are essentially taking their exit interview for the faith not because they're questioning the death and resurrection of Jesus, but because they've decided to throw out the teachings of Jesus on sexuality. And I need you to see that you can't have the lordship of Jesus in some areas, but not the lordship of Jesus in other areas. It doesn't work like that. If Jesus is not lord over our genitals, he's not lord over our hearts. And track with me. That doesn't mean there's not grace and there's not forgiveness. That doesn't mean that there's not redemption. There is no sexual sin that hasn't been forgiven, forgiven, and there's no sexual sin that the death and resurrection of Jesus is not sufficient to cover. Like there's no scarlet letters in the kingdom of God. Uh, hey, listen, Jesus' genealogy is full of people that committed horrific sexual sin and people that were horrifically sinned against sexually are in the human ancestral line of Jesus. And the church since the very beginning has been full of broken sinners and there's nothing that God looks at in our sin that is greater than the better word spoken by the blood of Jesus. But we receive that word as we say Jesus is Lord, as we surrender and repent. That leads to the second thing, number two, John's teaching and his life were consistent. This is really important. Look at verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. I, I, I want to make the point here that when it comes to John calling out Herod due to his sexual sin, John is smoking what he's selling. He's not a hypocrite. He's not playing games. He's not judging some people with one standard and letting himself off the hook. He's a man that's living a celibate life as a single man in submission to Jesus. And again, none of us in this room are perfect. I have struggled on and off through my whole life due to things that happened to me as a kid that gave me a shame identity with both lust and pornography. And there's nobody in this room that's a follower of Jesus that doesn't struggle, that doesn't fail, that doesn't blow it. But here's what you see in the life of John. The contrast between him and Herod is not perfection, but it's repentance and its growth in holiness and its desire to leave no part of his life excluded from the lordship of Jesus. I'm going to show you two last things that are really important. Number three, I want you to see that John's life and death seem tragic to most views 
of the good life. If life is about power and pleasure, John's a failure. If life is about the conservative family values of marriage and family being ultimate, John's life is a total failure. If life is about comfort and security, John is a total failure. He dies at around 30 to 33 years old. If life is about success and career legacy, John is an abject failure. He even said, I have to decrease that Jesus would increase. His disciples start transferring to Jesus. He has no legacy other than the fact that he's the guy that preached Jesus is here. And yet, this leads us to the fourth thing. We have to come to a verdict. Which one of these lives is a tragedy and which one of these lives is beautiful? And what I want you to see is that the thing about John's life that's crazy is that his ministry began by saying, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Meaning, hey, this is the guy that all of the Old Testament is prophesying. This is the guy that's going to undo the curse. This is the guy who's the seed of woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. This is the guy that's going to bring an everlasting kingdom forgiveness and redemption, this is the guy that's going to usher in the reign of God in which thorns and thistles are done away with and the child will play by the hole of the cobra. This is the one that's going to make a new heavens and a new earth and redeem all of creation. That's the beginning of John's ministry and the end of John's ministry is verse 29. When his disciples heard of it, the death of John, they came and took his body and they laid it in a tomb. Hey, listen, here's what's crazy. The entirety of John's life is about Jesus and his work and his kingdom and his rule. And the thing about John is that John is not living his life according to the standards of the good life based on Roman ideas or Greek ideas or popular Jewish conservative ideas of marriage and family. John's whole life is being banged on the fact that in the death, of in the death and resurrection of Jesus, to follow him and to know him is to experience his death and his resurrection yourself. Meaning, listen, he gets laid in the tomb as one of the first people we have in scriptures, the beginnings of the Christian church. He's starting in this text a tradition of Christians being buried in hopeful anticipation that death is not the end, that our bodies will be raised and we will see him face to face and we will live with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth. What this means, listen, I, I know I need to close, but listen, what this means is that because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have hope. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have courage that even if somebody cuts off our head, that's not the end. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can experience delayed gratification even when it comes to good gifts that we're not experiencing. One of my favorite teachers, Collie, uh, Collie's the one that introduced me to her, is Dr. Sarah Williams. I, I love her stuff. And I'll end with this. Dr. Sarah Williams has this lecture on, on time that's really fascinating. And that sounds really geeky, but here's what I love about it. She recounts the story of the first Christian missionaries that were reaching the barbarian tribes in the British Isles. And those barbarian tribes in the British Isles, their violence and their perversion was epic. They saw it as a sign of courage and vindication and victory to rape women when they conquered other tribes. So abuse of women and polygamy were rampant. 
And these missionaries go to these people, and these people start becoming Christians. They start following Jesus, but their entire worldview around sex and marriage is not a Christian worldview. It's a violent, hateful, barbarian worldview. And these missionaries, they send a letter to the Pope, and they say, hey, what do we do? How do we disciple these people into obedience to Jesus with their bodies? And the Pope wrote back the weirdest thing. He said, teach them the church calendar. That sounds absurd. Like, that's your strategy, bro? Teach them the liturgical calendar? But the Pope was saying this. If they get Easter, if they get Easter, they'll be able to deny the gratification that they're used to and say no to the urges of their flesh. Because if Easter's real, if Jesus was raised from the dead to give up marriage in this life and to be celibate, or to live in fidelity to your spouse and to say no to the other options, or to give away more money than you keep, or to be a person that forgives your enemies instead of taking vengeance out on them is all rooted in the fact that Jesus is alive and you will not end because you believe in him. That you can endure and you cannot give up and you can fight and you don't have to be scared of cancer And you don't have to feel like the marriage that you're in that's not checking all the boxes of fulfilling every dream that you thought it would means that your life is over because that's not the center of your life. And if you don't get married and you live a life of singleness, your singleness profoundly testifies to the world that the hope of the world is not you having children or me having children. It's the resurrection of Jesus. John being laid in the tomb is actually perhaps the most prophetic thing that he ever did. He banked everything on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I've said things that are hard to hear, and I pray today that you would take our hearts and make them soft to your word. I pray that you would be with us and teach us and encourage us. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. I pray that you would lead us to deeper faith. We pray for your help. We pray for your mercy. We pray that as we come to the Lord's Supper, that you would shape us and form us in Jesus' name.